0: If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7, as we continue hearing the word of the Lord from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 7, Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Into the ark, you and all your household, for you alone. I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean two, a male and his female, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights." and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made noah did according to all that the lord had commanded him now noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth then noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the flood of uh, because of the water of the flood of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground there went into the ark to Noah by twos male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth in the six hundredth year of noah 's life in the second month on the seventeenth day of the month on the same. Day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rains fell on the earth for forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, and they and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark. So that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds, cattle, beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth And all mankind, of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth one hundred and fifty days. Now... As the uh, seen in the bulletin, Lord willing, we're going to be looking both at Genesis 7 and Genesis 8 this morning, but our one point from Genesis chapter 7 is this, enter the ark, enter the ark. Last week we saw in Genesis chapter 6 the situation on the earth that was leading up to the flood. The godly were being corrupted, there were marriages that ought not to have been, There was violence and great wickedness abounding. We saw in Genesis 6-5 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And thus came the judgment of the flood. Noah, of course, found favor in the eyes of the Lord and was commanded by God to build the ark. Now, we didn't spend much time last week considering the dimensions that were given, but those uh, dimensions for what the ark was supposed to be are found in the latter portion there of chapter 6. It was to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits in breadth, and 30 cubits in height. Now usually we think of a cubit as about 18 inches in length, a foot and a half, and that's Perhaps a pretty good rough estimate, though uh, it could have potentially been a little bit longer, perhaps 20 to 22 inches long. If we do the figures on the, on the small side, assuming that the qubit was 18 inches, the end result would be about 33,750 square feet per deck on the arc. And there were three decks, which would give a total of 101,250 square feet. On the whole ark, but I don't think that that even tells the entire story. For many of the smaller animals and birds and so forth would not have needed to occupy floor space per se. They could have easily been put in cages that were stacked upon one another. And uh, if we figure the the height of the ark and then take into account the uh, the area. Of the, the floor space, we get something like 1.5 million cubic feet inside the ark. And that's with figuring cubit on the small side, 18 inches. If the cubit was longer, then obviously the ark would have had correspondingly more space. Chapter 6, then, the Lord gave the instructions for the ark, and Noah obeyed. Chapter 7 then opens one week before the rains of the flood were to come the opening verses of the chapter Noah and his family are commanded to enter the ark and to take with them the sevens of every clean animal and when we when we read there of sevens I would be inclined to take that not as seven pairs but as seven animals that is three pairs plus one and of unclean animals they were to only take a pair In verse 4 the lord gives the time frame and says for after seven more days i will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And so at this point, Noah and his family have a week to get themselves and the animals onto the ark and to do whatever last-minute things they need to do before the flood comes. And we find in verse 5 that they did, that Noah did, according to all that the Lord commanded. Verse 7, Noah entered. He entered, his family entered. The Lord brought the animals to the ark as seen in verses 8 and 9. These animals go in as far as we can tell, not because Noah is a great herdsman or great at rounding up all the animals from the face of the earth, but because the Lord brought them to Noah to get onto the ark so that they might be preserved. And sure enough, we find in verse 10 that, as the Lord had said, the waters came upon the earth after those seven days. Verse 11 gives us the specific date in, with respect to Noah's life. This is the 17th day of the second month of the 600th year Of his life. Verse 11 then describes the sources of the waters, and there are two. There are the fountains of the great deep that burst open, and the floodgates of the sky. The floodgates of the sky, obviously, is in reference to the rain, and the fountains of the great deep are in reference to water which was already on the surface of the earth, perhaps great springs under the earth bursting forth violently, or something of that nature. And then verse 13 reiterates the fact that Noah and his family entered the ark. They did so on that very day, that 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year. And so after Noah and all of the the people and the animals that were with him entered the ark, we find in verse 16 that the Lord closed the ark behind him. The Lord closed up the ark, closed up the door so that Noah would be safe inside when the judgment came. And the judgment did come. Forty days and forty nights of rain and the water covers the earth, even the highest mountains everywhere under heaven are covered, according to verses 19 and 20. And so this is a global flood that kills all of life on earth that lived on the land. According to verse 23, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky. Now we notice in that list that obviously the, the fish and the sea creatures are noticeably absent. Of course, they would not be wiped out in a flood, but... As we find of land creatures, verse 23, only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark, and the water prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. Now, it is in this way that we are introduced to a theme that then uh, runs through Scripture, and that is this theme of a, a water ordeal, if we may call it that. And the flood gives us the, the paradigm of it in uh, of such an ordeal in that it was by water that judgment came upon the earth and as we find in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 20 that Noah and his family were brought safely through the water Noah and his family were on the ark and were brought safely through the water and it was much the same with the red sea the israelites were brought safely through the water They passed through on dry land. But then those very waters came back together in judgment upon Pharaoh's army. And these water ordeals of the Old Testament point us forward to New Testament truth. And thus, as Paul compares the the passage through the sea to baptism, he says this in 1 Corinthians 10.2, that all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And Peter makes the comparison between baptism and the waters of the flood when he says in 1 Peter 3, uh, 20 and 21, when he says that eight persons were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, Lord willing, we'll plan to consider those words of Peter more next Sunday evening, On uh, the evening of Easter Sunday, inasmuch as Peter speaks of an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, Lord willing, we'll consider that more uh, next Sunday night. For now, though, suffice it to say that the ordinance of baptism does not confer salvation to the one who is baptized, but it does symbolize the death and burial of the old man and symbolizes the fact that we are raised up to walk in newness of life as new creatures in Christ. And so we're introduced here in the account of the flood to this, this water ordeal. And the the account that we have here in chapter 7 is, is very straightforward and very much to the point. Certainly not exhaustive in detail, but it is nonetheless very clear. And one of the things that is worthy of our notice here is the repetition of this word enter or Entered. If you're using the, the ESV or the King James Version, the rendering of the verb are, are more variable. You might see it translated in some cases as go, went, entered. However, the translations may differ. The, the same root verb is used in all cases. And so you see it there in the Lord's command in verse 1, enter the ark. You see it in the obedience of Noah and the others in verse 7. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, entered the ark because of the flood of water. You see it in verse 13. Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three sons of his wife with them, entered the ark. You see it twice in verse 16. Those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. So this is a, this is a bit of a theme here. The command to enter and the fact that they did enter as simple as it is, this is profoundly important. There, is, there was no survival of the flood, no survival of the judgment of God, without entering the ark. It was the ark, through the ark, that Noah and his family were brought safely through the water. There was a way out of judgment, and only one way out of judgment, and that was by God's appointed means the appointed means of the ark. Noah had a command to enter. He entered and was saved from the judgment. Now you and I likewise have a command to enter. And so we read the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 13. And uh, he says there in verses 24 and following, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, you will begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. There was a way to enter. There was a time to enter. And we had best heed the command. And obey and enter while there is time before the door was shut, before the door is shut upon us. Now, obviously, we have no idea whether there were people running up to the ark and banging on the door after the Lord had shut it and the rains began and everybody saw that Noah, the preacher of righteousness, was actually right all along. We have no idea. But nonetheless, it is a powerful image. The people heeded the command of God and entered the ark the door was shut. No one could enter then, even if they wanted to. It was too late. The door was shut. And Jesus tells us that one day the door of salvation is going to be shut. He says there's going to be people who are trying to enter but can't. The master will close the door when the time for entering has expired. And there's going to be people who bang on the door and try to get in, and Jesus won't let them in. And the reason is because they have no connection with Jesus. They don't know him, and Jesus doesn't know them. He doesn't know where they're from. They're evildoers. They haven't been made right with Jesus. The way to enter is to be born again. And therefore Jesus says in John 3.3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And again in John 3.5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter kingdom of God. To be born again is to be born of the Spirit. It is to be regenerated. And this is not something that we can do for ourselves. It is something that must be done to us, something that must be done to us by God. Apart from this work of the Holy Spirit, we are spiritually dead and separated from God. We need the Holy Spirit to give us this new life. Another way of expressing the same thing is to say that something must be done to us if we're going to enter the kingdom of God. God has to do something to us, something in us, if we are to be saved. And this means that every one of us is absolutely dependent on the Lord for our salvation. We're born as sinners. Flesh gives birth to flesh. As we considered a few weeks ago, we're born in the image of Adam. We have original sin In us. And we're sinners. And this means that there is a gap between us and God that we could never begin to bridge. But thanks be to God that in his mercy, he bridges the gap. He sends Christ into the world to die on the cross and to take the punishment that we deserved. And to give us a righteousness then that we could never earn for ourselves. And whoever believes in Jesus won't receive the judgment that they deserve. They won't perish in hell under the judgment of God, but will have eternal life. Problem, though, with our stubborn human hearts is that even with that offer of grace on the table, we wouldn't choose it if we were left to ourselves. If the, the choice were completely left to us in our fallen and sinful condition, we would reject it every time because that's how sinful we are. That's how fallen the human heart is. We would reject the gospel of Christ in the same way that Noah's generation rejected his preaching with hardness of heart. I'll put it this way in Romans 8 five and following, when he said that those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so, What the Apostle tells us is that our minds, when they are set on the flesh, are hostile to God and that we cannot subject ourselves to the law of God, that we are not able to do so. Again, this means that if we were to be saved, if we are to be saved, it means that God must do something to us, something within us. But thanks be to God, again, He does it. He breaks down the enmity. The way He does it, again, is by causing us to be born again, causing us to be regenerated and thus it is God himself who does this great work. As we find in James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. And so when Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door, he's telling us that we must be active, that our duty is clear that we're commanded to repent and to believe the gospel, that Jesus has come and lived and died on the cross to save sinners, and the door of salvation is open today. And we don't know how long it's going to be open. Genesis 7, there was a clear word given to Noah that it would be for seven days. My guess is that most of the folks in the world didn't know they had just seven days. They had no idea that the rains were coming and that judgment was coming upon them. And so today is the day to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. And Jesus uses another image in John ten nine when he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the door to salvation, the door to life. And we must come to him and enter. And so friends, our situation is really parallel to that of Noah's Generation. We talked to some about that last week. That the judgment of God is, is coming, but praise be to him, he's provided a way out, a way of salvation. But you must go to him. You must enter through Christ if you would be saved. You must repent and believe, and you are responsible and accountable to do this. Don't wait. Someday the door is going to be shut. And at that time there is no entry available. But only a fearful expectation of the wrath of God. And so, my friends, enter the ark, enter into Christ, be saved. Now let's look ahead to uh, to chapter eight, and we'll read uh, just down through verse nineteen. Let's pick up reading chapter eight, verse one. But God remembered Noah, and all the beasts, and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month, In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of the earth. Then he put his hand out and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth, then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st year, on the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds, animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him every beast and every creeping thing and every bird everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark now our point which we will draw here from these first 19 verses of chapter 8 is god remembered god remembered this chapter of course gives us the explanation of how the flood receded the rain fell 40 days 40 nights At the end of them, the water remained upon the earth for 150 days, we're talking five months, until it began to recede. And we see in verse 1 that the Lord sent this wind to dry up the land, and so five months after the ordeal had begun, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat in the 17th of the seventh month, remember the flood began in the 17th of the second month, so Five months to the day later, it rests on the mountains of Ararat. And I think the fact that it is said in the plural that they rested on the mountains of Ararat seems to indicate broadly that the ark came to rest on, on that mountain range, not necessarily on uh, a particular mountain, but a mountain that is, that is in that range instead of an indication of a specific peak in the range. But we'll notice from the text that this is not the end of Noah's time on the ark. It takes a while for the earth to dry up. It's not until seven months after the ark rested on the mountains that Noah and his family leave the ark. That doesn't happen until the 27th day of the second month of the next year, as we see in verses 14 through 19. In the meantime, however, there's the sending out of the raven and then those those three sendings out of the dove. First, the dove couldn't find a resting place and came back. Noah waits seven more days, sends out the dove again. This time the dove comes back with a freshly picked olive leaf. Seven more days, Noah sends out the dove, and the dove does not return. But all of these happenings in these verses are simply the outplaying of what we find in verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. God remembered he remembered Noah who was righteous and blameless before him. He remembered also the beasts and the cattle whom he had preserved. And when we read that God remembered, obviously this doesn't simply mean that God had cognitive memory of Noah's existence and his situation. This is not the way that you and I remember a long lost friend from middle school that we almost forgot about in all of the years since then. When we read in Scripture that God remembered, what's being conveyed is that God took action on account of those who are mentioned. God remembered in the sense of taking action for their good. We see this borne out in Psalm 106, verses 4 and 5, where the psalmist says, Remember me, O Lord, in your favor towards your people. Visit me with your salvation that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, and that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, and that I may glory with your inheritance. When the psalmist there is is pleading with God to be remembered, he's asking for God to take action on his behalf, action in a positive way, to visit him with salvation, so that he can see the prosperity of of God's people and rejoice in the gladness of God's nation. And so to remember in that sense entails action. And so it is here in Genesis 8-1 as well. God took action for Noah. He did good to Noah as the events of the chapter demonstrate. God had promised to save Noah and so he preserved him through the flood by means of the ark. And when that judgment was accomplished, God orchestrated all of these details so that Noah and his family and the animals and the birds might be able to leave the ark and get back to life on earth. In that God remembered Noah, we see the faithfulness of God to his promises. We see the faithfulness of God to his people. The fact that God remembered demonstrates God's faithfulness. And glory be to him, our God never changes. The Lord is still faithful to his people, still faithful to his promises. He still remembers his servants for good. And so just hear some of these testimonies from, uh, from the New Testament. We hear Paul's words to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 6 through 9, when he says, Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you blameless to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. Faithful to his people, we find in Second Thessalonians 3:3, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Or we find in First Thessalonians five twenty three and twenty four, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you; he also will bring it to pass, just as it was. With Noah, just as he was toward Noah, so also our God is faithful to us. Faithful to forgive, faithful to save from judgment, faithful to continue our sanctification, faithful to preserve his people whom he has called and to cause them to persevere to the end. And God is faithful to order all of the means in connection with those great ends Just like he sent the wind here to dry up the earth for Noah, he did everything necessary to get the dry land ready so that those in the ark could return to the dry land. And just as God sovereignly orchestrated those events in remembering Noah, so also he does for his people in regard to their salvation. And so what this means then is that if you are a Christian, you can rejoice because God has remembered you. God has taken action on your behalf. He has sent His Son into the world to take on flesh and blood for your salvation. And thus, Zacharias of old, the father of John the Baptist, saw evidence that God had remembered His holy covenant in the fact that God had raised up a horn of salvation in the house of His servant David. As we find in Luke 1, 69-72, God was remembering His people and His covenant in the sending of Christ into the world. Our Jesus has died and risen again for us. Our Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart and given you new life. This is evidence that God has remembered you. And my brother, my sister, I assure you that if you are in Christ, the great and eternal God will always, always remember you. You will be strengthened and sustained and upheld by his hand. And therefore we find in Isaiah forty twenty-eight to 31 Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And so, my friend, keep looking to the Lord. Keep waiting upon the Lord. He will remember you. Whatever kind of mess you may be in now, one day... One day that will be cleaned up. It might not be any time soon. But one day the loose ends will be tied up and he will remember you and all will be at peace. And so we find in 1 Peter 5, 10, and 11 that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. So friend, your only hope is Christ. Keep looking to him. Let your posture be that of the psalmist, as we heard in our call to worship this morning, Psalm 123, verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. God will be gracious to you. Just as he remembered Noah and fulfilled his promise to him, so he will do for all those who come to Christ in faith. God remembered Noah. God will remember you too if you're in Christ. Now let's look back to these closing verses of of Genesis 8. And we'll see here God's patience is for our salvation. God's patience is for our salvation. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat, and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Now in these final verses of of chapter 8, we see Noah's response to God's grace, which was shown to him throughout this ordeal. He offers God a a sacrifice, and the Lord is pleased with that sacrifice, as we see there in verse 21. And we need to pay special attention, though, to verse 21 and compare it back with what we saw last week in chapter 6. Because here in verse 21, the Lord says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is... Evil from his youth. Now this is uh, this is a difficult text, isn't it? I will never again curse the ground, for or it could be translated because the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. It seems, in this way, that the Lord is citing the wickedness of man as a reason why he will not destroy the earth in the same way that he did in the case of the flood. But if you think back to Genesis 6, verse 5 and following, when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his hearts was only evil continually, that was reason for the judgment of the flood that came. And this, though, serves to magnify the grace and patience of God as we, as we think about what's going on here in verse 21. God looks upon mankind and he sees the mess that they are in. He sees that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a bit different than what was stated back in, in chapter 6. Here in 821, he's, he's looking at the fact that the heart of man is evil from his youth, from the get-go, from conception forward. It's evil from his youth. To deal with man according to strict justice would require a perpetual destruction of the earth and a complete destruction even of the human race from the earth. But in his great patience and mercy, the Lord is willing to withhold judgment, willing to give the natural processes which he himself has established the opportunity to run so as to bring about his great plan of salvation, the promised seed of the woman would come, and God's plan of saving a people for himself would be realized. In the meantime, until that plan is fully accomplished, he says in verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Now obviously, we know that one day the earth in its current form will not remain. Christ will return, the earth and its works will be burned up, as we heard in 2 Peter 3, in that reading from our brother Stan this morning. But we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth, a place in which righteousness dwells. But in the meantime, while this earth does remain, there's this regular pattern of things. There's the days, the seasons, of the year, and so on. And in this, the Lord is patient, despite the sinfulness of man. Instead of calling for a perpetual judgment continually to Wipe the face of the earth clean, the Lord is patient. And therefore, as Peter says, we are to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Second Peter three fifteen. We're to regard his patience as salvation, because the door of salvation now is still open. The Spirit and the bride are still saying, Come. And what this means practically for each and every one of us is that we must not waste the patience of God. God is patient, God is calling us to himself, and we better come while the door is open because one day it will be shut. We ought to be telling others to come because one day the door is going to be shut. God is patient, but judgment is coming again. So we need to enter the ark while we may. We need to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. We need to repent to cling to Christ. Let's trust in him and let's pray. Father, we recognize your mercy because we know that you know how sinful we are. We don't know the full extent of our sinfulness, but you do. And yet, you withhold your judgment. You allow the days and the seasons and the months of the year to continue. You allow the preaching of the gospel to go forth. Lord, we pray that we would take earnest heed to the words of the gospel We pray that we would regard your patience as salvation. That when we see great wickedness done on the earth, we would know that still there is good that is happening. The gospel is being proclaimed. The door of salvation is still opening. And Father, we pray that we ourselves would enter. We pray that we would bring others so that they might enter as well. We ask your blessing and your help. In Jesus' name, amen.